My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 10 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with co-founders of the Sabina Project, Charlotte James and Andrea Wright, exploring the intersection between psychedelics and anti-racism. White guilt and shame, I mean, just like shame and self-judgment doesn't serve any of us in our personal journey, it's like white guilt and shame doesn't really, and fragility, white fragility does not serve the liberate, collective liberation movement, right? So like, there is a need to move past that. No matter who I'm sitting across, a big part of what I am doing is clearing my mirror by cleaning myself so that I am not projecting my own story onto the human being that is expressing their needs. If you keep like calling people to the table and calling people out for accountability purposes, but then those people change and you continue to cancel them, then cancel culture holds no weight. Like there is no method of holding people accountable because it's like, fine, if you're gonna cancel me, you cancel me. So I think it's like ultimately not super productive. You know, pointing fingers, we do a lot of that pointing fingers, but really there's a lot of internal work that yeah. all of us need to be doing. And it's, it's it's always surprising me that in the shamanic world, we have a lot of that. We have just a bunch of that in the shamanic world. Yeah. The healing community as we do, like, and we're supposed to be, the, in my opinion, the examples mm-hmm. of gentleness and respect. A lot of the time when we see folks talking about connecting with our ancestors, it's from a very BIPOC um, specific perspective, which I think is because the veneration of ancestors is just culturally more prevalent in BIPOC spaces. Um, But white folks also have a pre-colonial, pre-Christian shamanic traditions to lean on and tap into and ancestors to venerate. Well, as we know, some conversations feel pretty crunchy to lean into. And I think for a lot of people, the conversation around race falls into that category. But it's an important conversation to be having, of course, especially right now, and also especially in the psychedelic space. And I think what's even more important is that we all, and I mean all of us, learn how to hold challenging, triggering conversations with grace and with compassion and kindness, keeping an open mind to all perspectives and showing up with a strong willingness to listen. And I really appreciated being able to speak with Charlotte and Dre so honestly and candidly and being able to express things like that it kind of sucks to feel like as a white person now, we either fall into one of two categories, either white supremacy or white fragility. And I really just appreciated so much the way they responded to my questions and the way they showed up to engage in this conversation with what felt like a lot of kindness and definitely, you know, dropping in on a level of seriousness. But there was this strong quality of lightheartedness as well, which just felt really good. And I also really admire what they're creating with the Sabina Project. And their mission is to work with sacred earth medicines as a catalyst for the liberation of all oppressed people by specifically working with medicine and the power of ceremony to help dismantle systems of oppression that become internalized. And they're doing that by creating safe spaces for people in the BIPOC community to integrate and openly share their experiences. 
And well, that's a mission I can really get behind. And they use the term BIPOC throughout this conversation. And just in case you're not familiar with that term, it's good to be informed. And it stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And you know, it's just, it's not lost on me how incredibly absurd and bizarre it feels to be talking about skin pigmentation. And we we mentioned this in the conversation. And it's really just a lot to wrap the mind around when you really think about it. And so we we talk about cancel culture, spiritual bypassing, how we can become more aware of our inherent biases. They share their perspective on quote-unquote recreational medicine use and the importance of connecting to our own ancestral lineages and their shamanic practices. I also recently heard them speaking on another podcast, and I heard them say aho a few times, which is a term I think more and more white people are feeling less comfortable saying in this era of of cultural appropriation. And so I asked them about it, and they share a really interesting perspective on that as well. So before we dive into the conversation, I want to mention that the second annual Thank You Plant Medicine global event is coming up really soon. And I interviewed Jonathan Glazer, who's the co-founder of the Thank You Plant Medicine campaign for the first episode of this podcast, which was such a great conversation if you feel like circling back around and giving that a listen. And so on February 20th, people around the world will be publicly sharing their stories of gratitude for plant medicines and psychedelics using the hashtag thank you plant medicine on social media in this collective effort to raise awareness and end the stigma surrounding these tools for healing. And as we know, times are changing and it's thanks to campaigns like this that are helping to change this cultural narrative around psychedelics and plant medicines. And so on February 21st, there will be over 100 virtual sharing circles available for people to connect with each other online in the community. And so the theme for this year is looking at how plant medicines or psychedelics have helped improve a relationship in your life. And so I'll add these links in the show notes with all the information for you to get involved and tune in on the online events. And of course, all the links mentioned in this conversation about the Sabina Project will be included in the show notes. And if you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend checking out their course on psychedelics and anti-racism. And also, just in case you haven't received my four playlists for Psychedelic Journeys and Beyond or my free eight-day microdosing course, you can swipe those in the show notes as well or go to livefreelauraD.com and click on the freebies tab. At the end of this episode, I'll be sharing a song from the wonderfully talented Giselle, and it's a super sweet and fun version of an all-time medicine favorite classic, Agua de Estrellas. All right, without any further ado, here's my conversation with co-founders of The Sabina Project, Charlotte James and Andrea Wright. All right, welcome, Charlotte, Andrea, it's so nice to have you guys on the show today. Thanks for taking the time. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm good. I'm yeah. doing well. I'm actually a little, little tired today. I just I had this weird thing. I was, I, well, I didn't eat. I'm not sure. And so I was like falling asleep. <laughs> In the middle of the day, I'm like, what's going on? Oh, I haven't eaten. So yeah, but I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Next. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Well, I'd love to invite you both to Give a little background around, uh, you know, what is the mission of the Sabina Project that you co-launched together? I'd love to focus on that. And then maybe we could dive into the backstory of how you guys aligned to to co-create and co-launch this together. 
Yeah, for sure. So the Sabina Project is a platform to return reverence to ancestral practice and psychedelic medicine, which we call sacred earth medicine. And we do this through um, online education, uh, legal ceremony and integration, preparation and integration work. Mm -hmm. And we're really focused on how we can look to ancestral practice as a form of harm reduction in the what folks are calling this psychedelic renaissance. And how did this align? What, what's the backstory here? How did you guys meet and how long have you known each other? I think we met, the first time we met was at a brothel. <laughs> I just made that up. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Actually, she, she called me on the, on the telephone. I was, I remember I was walking down the street and this very interesting millennials calling on the phone and saying, that what I thought I heard was that they wanted to do ceremonies exclusively for BIPOC community. And I was like, mm, well, so I, I let her go on for like 15 minutes and I was like, definitely not, but okay. <laughs> but I was like, I was like, okay, I got to school this young. Um, and, you know, I, I did my whole like transcendence is about not excluding and, you know, it's not appropriate in the spiritual world. We all, you know, we all one relation, blah, blah, blah. And then what I really appreciated was she didn't like argue with me. She just said, oh, okay, thank you for sharing. And there's a, there's a conference, People of Color Psychedelic Conference in DC. I have two tickets, would you like to come? I was like, oh, okay, this is a Jedi. Clearly this is a Jedi warrior here. It knows how to like <laughs> quiet down the old, the old person, right? And so we went to this conference and I was really blown away by the need, uh, the, the, the clear need to have integration periods uh, with people of color for sure. And just the need to have more uh, people of color, you know, in the healing practice, like sharing these, these medicine ways for me, because it was, you know, the, the, the consistent story from a lot of folks was harm that had been caused in these all white spaces um, after ceremony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we got together. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I had been doing a bunch of research on, or I had just started to look into this intersection of psychedelics and race. That you know, sacred earth medicine had been in my life for a number of years, and I was starting to wonder like why these things sort of weren't melding. And then I saw someone in my co-working space with combo marks. And like made some sly remark that they like probably went to a white shaman. And they're like, no, it's this, it's this uh, black guy in Baltimore. And so, yeah, that's how we had our first conversation. Mm. And that was like, not even two years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then from that, from that, the pandemic hit. <clears throat> and so a lot of the things we were going to do in person, we ended up having to go online mm-hmm. to do. Which was, I mean, this is how the spirit that moves through all things works, right? It's, you know, it's kind of like how ceremony works. It's not about what you want in ceremony. It's about what you need, right? So uh, our, our mission was to, to get the word out there. And then the spirit that moves to all things kind of just has been guiding us this whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we're thankful. Beautiful. And when you say people of color expressed that there was harm that they experienced in white spaces. Can you give me an example of what that looks like just to bring more awareness for people listening? Yeah. 
So there's a really helpful term that sort of like encapsulates uh, a lot of where some of this harm can come from, which is the term spiritual bypassing, Mm -hmm. um, where folks will talk about how you just need to transcend and, um, you know, it doesn't help to talk about negative things. And by talking about negative things like race, it just perpetuates them. And these are constructs that are made up and we need to surpass them and etc. And when you're in, you know, a very emotionally, spiritually, and even physically vulnerable space, and folks are saying these types of things, um, it can be really damaging and it can cause harm because after ceremony, like we have to come back into a world that has created systems and structures to keep us quiet and oppressed uh, in a number of ways. And so that's where this conversation around having these BIPOC spaces for integration became so important no. um, <laughs> for being able to talk about these experiences and see that that we weren't alone in having them. Um, yeah. Just think of it like this way. Uh, 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 imagine a person going to a therapist or a minister or a priest of some sort and being very vulnerable about whatever the the trauma that they're enduring. And let's say that person is there because they've been assaulted by someone sexually. And then at at some point, the counselor, therapist, priest says, oh, that's not really a thing. Mm-hmm. You need to just get over that. So not only do you already have the trauma that you're experiencing, right, and dealing with, but now you're, uh, it's impacted and more, in, it's intensified like a thousandfold because this person who you have a tremendous amount of respect for, right, to put yourself in a vulnerable position and trust, and they have shown you that you, that either, either two conclusions, one, you made a, you made an error in judgment to put yourself in this in a position of safety with this person clearly wasn't safe or you start to question your reality mm-hmm. well maybe i should just get over my structural racism that i'm experiencing on a daily basis <laughs> that's constantly oppressing me right right mm-hmm. oh yeah so it's just it can be it's, it is extraordinarily harmful when you're in these spaces and they do the uh mm-hmm. the bypassing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for people listening, you know, I just, I think it's just such an amazing conversation to be having and bringing more awareness for facilitators, you know, holding space for a wide, diverse range of people. You know, what advice do you have for people and leaders stepping into the psychedelic space when it comes to holding space for um, mixed race circles? Mm. Mm. I see a lot of folks talking about trauma-informed practice. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of focus on trauma-informed practice, predominantly as it re- as it pertains to like sexually based trauma. And I think that we have to remember that like racial trauma is a very real thing. And so the same space that you would hold for someone, and and use lean on those trauma-informed practices, like are the same approaches, some of the same approaches that can be used when working with people from the BIPOC community. Yeah. Well, well, one very important difference. When a person is coming to us for most traumas that they're coming to us, these are not current experiences. Mm -hmm. This is something that's happened in the past. Right, yes. Your dad said he didn't love you when you were 
six, mm-hmm. right? But you're still reliving that trauma, those words over and over again, right? When it comes to structural racism and oppression, this is my daily experience. No yeah. matter how positive I am in the world, the reality is if I get pulled by a police officer, this could be my life could end. The reality is that when I go to to get a job, that it's not enough for me to be the most qualified person. That I simply because of the color of my skin, I may not get that job or maybe may not be allowed to live in that community or maybe called name. I mean, we know now white, white supremacy is clearly on the rise in this country. We know that. It, just imagine the experience of a, of a person of color that knowing that a significant portion of the police department and when I mean significant, even if one police officer is a white, <laughs> white supremacist, that's significant. This, this person who's pulling me over and has a gun and authority to take my life, my body, control mm-hmm. my body, could be someone who actually hates me simply because of the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. Like, just think about that trauma, that, that, that realistic trauma. And then uh, in our world, every decision I make, I have to consider how that decision reflects on my entire culture. <laughs> Right. My entire, every person. A responsibility. It's a huge responsibility to, so. Yeah. You know, you might, I would say that as a, as a practitioner myself, no matter who I'm sitting across, a big part of what I am doing is clearing my mirror, right? Cleaning myself so that I am not projecting my own story onto the human being that is expressing their needs, right? Those unmet needs that they're needing to get. Mm -hmm. So even if I don't understand it, right, that's okay. Because there's a lot of trauma that I'm not going to put myself into just to understand it. But we all know, intuit- well, not intuitive, we, know, we all know, like, for example, we say sexual trauma, that we certainly don't diminish the victim. We don't blame the victim. Like, I mean, there certainly was a time 50 years ago where you would say, well, what was that person wearing, right? But we know better to do that now, right? Well, we should. <laughs> we should. Right? I was say, in an ideal world, ideal. but yeah, yeah, yeah. So but now we do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, just with like racial trauma. Step, step forward to be a, a healing presence, and then be quiet and listen and be nurturing. I mean, with all it, 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 it doesn't really seem to be that complicated for me. But for some reason, <laughs> when it comes to people of color, it seems to be this extra level of we need to explain ourselves a thousand yeah, times yeah, yeah, yeah. and break it down to people like, you know. And, yeah. and um, you know, I think it, it is important and necessary that we have a conversation of how you can better serve people of color, Black folks in these spaces. At the same time, like it shouldn't take additional training for you to not re-traumatize what? a person when they're talking about their experience and their trauma. <laughs> um, but, you know, as Dre is saying, there is there is this question of like, oh, but is it really that bad, right? Um, but you had a black president. Yeah, yeah. Um, for you, yeah, and it's not, so it's not acute trauma, it's chronic, right? Um, <laughs> and until we fix the structures and the systems that replicate the trauma, the least we can do is uh, like liberate ourselves from it. Yeah. And I think another part of that it also is for folks who are not of color is to be honest about their bias. Yes. They, 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 they may not be aware of their bias, but they have a bias, right? Because if they didn't have a bias, you wouldn't have to explain. The reason why we have to, what people of color are constantly having to explain 
to people of non-color about the trauma that we we're experiencing in, in America is because there's a clear bias, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why we have to explain it, right? Which is yeah. really unusual. Like m- there's no other example of the victim needing to explain themselves about the, the trauma. Like we, you know, we don't, we don't ask people to do that. It's tough for people of color. Yeah, that's true. Um, we have two questions that we like to ask non-BIPOC folks. One is, why is racism bad for you? Because mm-hmm. if you really sit down and try to answer it, it's actually challenging. And two, what are you specifically willing to sacrifice in the fight of dismantling white supremacy? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will be like, oh my God, I'm ready to sacrifice anything. I'll sacrifice everything. No, like, is it your job title? Is it a board member seat? Is it a grant that you really want to get because you want to be the one doing the work instead of grassroots organizations that already exist within the community? Like, what is it specifically that you will sacrifice? Or some of that family wealth that you inherited because of of the oppression that your forefathers Mm -hmm. um, enjoyed, right? You know, Mm -hmm. that that as well. Yeah. Right. Well, I also wonder about just the sentiment around white guilt right now, you know, and I know there's a lot of people who really feel some resentment for being treated like, oh, I'm a white supremacist because I'm white. And that's really interesting. You know, it's like generalizations that get made where and then people are showing up. I'm like, I genuinely care about people like I'm not a white supremacist. So it's so interesting. And I'm, I'm so curious your general sentiment about like the state of the conversation right now and where we go from here. So I think there's there's a a few things. One, white guilt and shame. I mean, just like shame and self judgment doesn't serve any of us in our personal journeys, like white guilt and shame doesn't really and fragility, white fragility does not serve the liberate collective liberation movement, right? right? Mm-hmm. So like, there is a need to move past that. I think also this idea of understanding just what Dre is saying, like we all hold internalized biases. And when we talk about white supremacy, we're talking about the general idea that anything that is non-white is outside of the norm, right? And has a, has less, holds less value. Uh, And so we all have internalized systems of oppression and that's why it's such a great self-replicating system Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. The, j- the shame, the judgment, uh, the hatred that we hold for ourselves all stems from being colonized, being mm-hmm. oppressed, being, and this is for white folks as well, right? This is not like a BIPOC only sort of deal. And then the other thing that I would encourage is like for white folks to sit in that discomfort of being general- generalized, because just like Dre just said, like when we do or say something, we have to calculate how that's going to like be somehow representative of the entire black community, even though we are two individual people. And so white folks, they are very concerned. Like you'll hear the like, um, you know, when people were saying this happens a lot in different groups, people would say men are trash. Then men want to say not all men right now. And like true, not all men, but that's not the point of the sentiment. And in the same way of like white folks need to, fix this this is a racism is a white problem like that is true and and it's not a call out of like you had slaves we understand that that's not true but it's like how do you benefit from the privileges established by those systems of oppression Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Everything from redlining, where they had specific neighborhoods that people of color could move into, which were the older uh, neighborhoods, where, where the prices for homes that were, you know, sometimes 20, 30 years older were more expensive, right? But the only black people could live in it. And then the newer homes in the suburbs were, were with, the, with the newer construction were cheaper and, 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 and white folks could purchase those homes, right? So there's a huge wealth gap there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, an, another, uh, another thing to think of is like, you know, reparations. Uh, this is something that I always encourage people to, to review this idea of reparations. Um, and I, I want to just also support what you said is that we have, if you're a person of privilege, you have to get over your discomfort in these conversations, right? The fact that you are acting, dis, uh, being uncomfortable and complaining about it is actually a distraction to do this. So if you don't like being marginalized or being generalized, welcome to our world. That's the world we live in every day, right? So, exactly. so it's just, you know, it's okay. You still get to go back to your privileges. You don't lose any of those privileges from that. But after this conversation that we had, that's been so edifying for you, I still have to live, we still have to live in our reality, right? Yeah. So, um, but I think real talk, one way that we can really move the needle on this conversation is with money, right? And reparations is, is, is like a must, a, 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 it has to be a serious conversation. Mm-hmm. Right? For 400 years, black folks have, black bodies, their, their bodies were used to enrich this nation. At one point, this, the, um, uh, the American slave was actually more valuable than cotton. It was the most valuable commodity in the world. In fact, and this is why when people say, well, you know, I, I, I was, I, my family wasn't part of it. What people don't also realize is that many of the abolitionists all over the world, as, as for example, when England abolished slavery, that made folks in England feel good, but it also made the American slave actually more valuable, right? So as it, as it became less tolerable throughout the world. And there is lots of documented evidence to show that abolitionists, even though they were saying slavery was bad, they were actually benefiting significantly for investing in the American slave trade, right? So anybody who has any lineage connected to tobacco, cotton, firearms, alcohol, like that family wealth is complicit in slavery, right? Uh, textiles, it, we could go on and on and on. Sugar, <laughs> rubber, you know, I mean, just on and on. And And that's... We got to pay. We got to pay that that restitution mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate what you said, Charlotte. About and and I totally agree. I fundamentally believe that we can't grow collectively or heal through shame and through shaming each other and through fighting against each other. And it poses such interesting questions around where we go from here and when we see so much division and polarization right now, and this is such a big inquiry that I I think a lot of people are in right now of like, how do we move past this division and how do we hold space for more kind conversations? And it's actually something I I really appreciate about you both. I really feel that from both of you, even in the the short conversation we had last week, Charlotte, you're like holding space with a lot of kindness and a lot of openness to, to where the conversation wants to go. And I really appreciate that about what you guys are doing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we try to always communicate with gentleness and respect. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> and yeah, these are challenging topics, um, but we are um, grateful for the folks who are willing to come to the table and have open, vulnerable conversations yeah, absolutely. about it um, and are willing to sit in that discomfort. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, And I think it's important too. You know, I'm really thankful and grateful for these types of conversations because if we don't have these conversations, right? First of all, the only way people of color are going to change their experience in this country is two ways. It's going to be by bloodshed or it's going to be by collective cooperation. Mm-hmm. So if white folks don't have, if they're not part of this conversation, then what other choice do mm-hmm. people of color? Like we're, we're certainly not going to, endure another 500 years of this type mm-hmm. of experience, right? And, and I've, I've told my daughter, who's 11, that by the, by the time I take my last breath, I fully expect that she, as a woman, before she goes to college, I don't want to be living in a world where she may get sexually assaulted when she's going to college by some dude, right? I just don't want to live in that world, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to live in a world where a person of color might be treated differently just because of their color or a person because of what, who they choose to love is treated differently mm-hmm. because of that. We, I, these things have to change now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's just too much trauma. Every generation, every person that has to endure this for another day, it's the trauma, it's, it's just a price. The price just keeps going up and up and up and up for people, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see that because we've been kind of passive, all of us in, in, in addressing this, now you see like white supremacy is on the rise like nobody's business. Like mm-hmm. it's it's actually baked in our institutions now. Like in our institutions, we have people in, in government, high places of government who believe, we have senators right now who believe these ideologies are perpetuated. It, it's no longer the person who is down, downtrodden and, and, and poor that you could say, well, that's, that's who- They're uneducated. Uneducated, right? This is- <laughs> Very educated people who are expressing these viewpoints and it, and it's on the rise. Uh, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just think holding space with kindness and compassion, I saw that was part of your mission and I saw that on your website. And I think a lot of people are actually afraid to say the wrong thing and they're, you know, and, and you're pointing this out. It's like white discomfort. And I think it's also legitimate that people are like, wow, I'm going to move away from this conversation because I'm like afraid to be publicly taken down mm-hmm. and shamed for mm-hmm. not being aware of like the current word that we can't use now or oh, yeah. and it's culture. yeah and I'm yeah. like uh, the cancel culture and I'm like oh my god wow if I if I really step out and say I, I want to hold space for this conversation but if I say the wrong thing I'm e- either like white supremacy or white fragility and I fit into two boxes right now and there's not a lot of room for anything else and so it's like okay how do we you know move past this and the ca- Cancel culture, I just, yeah, I don't know. It's like... It is is interesting. Mm -hmm. And I I think, you know, it's hard because then this conversation can start to get into like the spiritual bypassing realm of like over-compassion for people, right? Like people who obviously continue to make choices that harm other people, people that continue to ignore um, calls for like being held accountable and all those sorts of things. But like, if people are willing to come to the table and have a conversation, and then you see them take the action they need to change their behaviors, their habits, their language, like whatever it is, then like, 
you don't keep canceling that person. I remember years ago, I had a conversation with my mom about um, a company that had been in the West Bank and I then they were boycotted against. They pulled their factories from the West Bank. And years later, I like, I don't know, bought something from this company. And she's like, I can't believe this. You have to boycott this company. If you keep boycotting a company that takes the action that you were boycotting them for, then your boycott holds no weight. So if you keep like calling people to the table and calling people out for accountability purposes, but then those people change and you continue to cancel them, then cancel culture holds no weight. Like there is no method of holding people accountable because it's like, fine, if you're going to cancel me, you cancel me. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like ultimately not super productive. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm not a big fan. I'm I'm a little bit older, so I'm not not (laughs) a fan of cancel culture. Yeah. Um, I don't don't know. I'm not really sure where it comes from, but it it seems to be, it comes from a place of insecurity and tremendous judgment for themselves, which is why they project on on, Mm. all of us, right? Because I think um yeah you know pointing fingers we do a lot of that pointing fingers but really there's a lot of internal work that yeah. all of us need to be doing and it's 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 always surprising me with in the shamanic world we have a lot of that mm-hmm. we have just as much of that in the shamanic world mm-hmm. yeah. the healing community as we do like and we're supposed to be the, in my opinion the examples mm-hmm. of gentleness and respect but in many times that you know we, there's a my favorite book is a book by Don Miguel Ruiz called The Four Agreements. Uh, you know, first group, be impeccable with your word, but be thoughtful. Because your words can you be your power, your poison. Um, but yeah, there's just not a lot of that. And I don't know where that comes from. And what I see, what's even worse is that we, part of the reason why cancel culture is effective is because we buy into it. Like we, we, we react to it, right, instead of ignoring it. Like a petulant child, we just kind of, you know, it's just it's really interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think this is a good segue into sacred earth medicines and just bringing it back to, that the only way that we can really align with collective liberation is by going within ourselves and doing that work. And plant medicines are a gateway into that inner dimension. And so mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious. I mean, first, I think I'd love to invite you to just define Afropsychedelia. I saw it on your website. And just for people listening, you know, how you're using that term. Yeah. So that is uh, the title of a series that we're putting out to celebrate Black Futures Month, which is what a lot of folks are calling Black History Month this year, which I'm super into. Um, And so that will be a library of videos of interviews with Black folks who are working with sacred earth medicine across the diaspora to accelerate their their healing journeys and our collective liberation. So there are folks who are therapists, mycologists, educators, cultivators, healers, guides, uh, all of those types of folks are included in the conversation. And the inspiration behind that was that we frequently find that we are invited to speak specifically about race and racial trauma, which we, of course, want to like further that conversation. But Black folks and, and BIPOC folks in this space, like we all hold our own expertise as well and our own expertise on our healing journeys and what our communities need. And so we wanted to create 
a space and a platform to have that conversation where folks could really share about their personal journeys and experiences with the medicine and then what they're contributing to this space um, so that folks have more resources Mm -hmm. and um, more examples, like Trey just said, just more examples of folks who are really out here positively impacting our community. Wonderful. And this is separate from the psychedelic anti-racism course. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So the psychedelic anti-racism course, um, the first part ran last year in November, October and November, and it was a four part series. It was a really uh, wonderful, I think, opening of that conversation. Again, like trying to um, house all of this conversation in one place so that we can con- continue to share it as a resource for people so that we can eventually begin to move past this this conversation, um, you know, when the time is, is right. But we talked about uh, sitting in your discomfort, recognizing personal bias and uh, personal privilege, and then had a really interesting conversation around reconnecting with ancestral mm-hmm. roots because a lot of the time when we see folks talking about connecting with our ancestors, it's from a very BIPOC um, specific perspective, which I think is because the veneration of ancestors is just culturally more prevalent in BIPOC spaces. Um, But white folks also have a pre-colonial, pre-Christian shamanic traditions to lean on and tap into and ancestors to venerate And we see this as a way of sort of helping to avoid the more predatory or colonial style cultural appropriation that can happen within this space. Um, If you have a connection with your own ancestors, you know your traditions that you can begin to practice. It makes it less necessary to take from others or romanticize or romanticize others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, hunter-gatherers all over the world we practice animism of some some sort and we all you know there's a, there's a lot of similarities between uh, the Celt how uh, the Vikings and the Lakota prayed right uh, or the Shipibo or uh, the Dogon right so there's a very lot of similarities in terms of what um, these uh, pre-colonized cultures how they communicated I think one of the other thoughts I have about <clears throat> about why there seems to be less connection to like Celtic or Druid or uh, Wiccan traditions by people who identify themselves culturally as white is because, you know, it, the way colonization worked, they started in that area they, and they set people on fire and killed them for <laughs> traditions, right? Assimilated those people, right, right. into this monochromatic uh, perspective. And then they moved and spread and spread that poison throughout right. the world. So by the time they got to Africa, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, South America, you know, white folks and, you know, or not white folks, but like Celtics have been, they had been, you know, under the, under the yoke of, you know, Abrahamic traditions and colonization for a significant amount of time. Yeah. So I think that might have something to do with why there's less, there tends to be less of a connection. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and the other thing is there is a benefit. You know, that, that's the other thing. You, do you ever, do you ever uh, watch Star Trek? Mm-hmm. And they, you remember the Borg? And they would say resistance. Oh, I just watched that episode. Yeah, it's futile, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was, there is some, there is a benefit 
right? To if you if if you can right. enjoy the privilege of Borgism or colonization, right? To just letting go of my Italian or my Irish or my Germanic right. roots and saying that I am white, right? Right. Especially in America, like, but um, which which is something we should all we should get into at some point. I don't know in this conversation, but you know. I was just thinking about this, like the the myth of whiteness and yeah. the, the creation of blackness in America. Yeah. That's a whole. That's 16, a, 1608. That's a massive right? tangent. Yeah, it wasn't even it wasn't <laughs> even a thing. Like going to people like I'm white. No, no. Well, actually, you're not, <laughs> you're not. You're German and probably French or something else. Just white like, is not that. a thing. Neither is black. Can we get into it? Like for someone who's saying that, and you're like, actually, think of it this way. And what's the benefit yeah. of thinking of it that way? Mm. Yeah. So essentially, 1608. Um, was when this idea, this concept, and what was happening is most of us who were in this country, um, with the exception of Native peoples who were wiped, wiped and, and killed and slaughtered, right? But most of us who, were, who migrated to this country, willingly or not, were slaves, right? Um, and then there, what happened was they, they, they started to have uprisings of slaves, black and white slaves, with uprise and kill their slave master. So um, the slaveholders came up with this ingenious concept. The slaves who were white, they would be given, afforded some privileges. They would, instead of being indentured servants for the rest of their lives, they would be able to work off their debt in a couple of years and, and own some land. The darker slaves or the, the slaves of non, that weren't, that it didn't look as much like they did those slaves would, would be um, chattel, became chattel slaves and they couldn't work off their debt. Um, and so that little divide was enough for the white slaves to be like, well, it ain't so bad for me anymore. <laughs> so I'm not going to join you in that uprising. Right. And so that's, that's how, it, it, that's how this whole consciousness around people gravitating to this idea of whiteness became a real thing. And then it was replicated again um post-slavery right right? so post-1865 then we have the industrial revolution start we have a bunch of europeans come in right Right. predominantly irish and italian right they're then seen as when they first come into the u.s are seen as not white they're not black but they're not white Right. right they're so they're like in this definitely marginalized group or class of immigrants right but then you have black slaves immigrating from right the great migration from southern states up into the north and then in the cities they need to create some system to keep the black folks still controlled so they create black codes right which were things like curfews not allowing black folks to gather in numbers in public places and those codes were not applied to the immigrants. So then the immigrants get to bump into the whiteness, right? So it replicates this myth of racial groups. This is not to say that race then is not real, because this is another favorite spiritual bypassing mm-hmm. statement of like race is a social construct, therefore it is not real. Mm-hmm. That is not true. It is seen in our systems. We've right. been talking about this, you know, um, this whole time. But it is this myth that all white people are a monolith, all black people are a monolith, right. all Latinx people are a monolith. Um, and it keeps us like further away from, instead of keeping us more connected, it actually keeps us more isolated from our traditions, which I think we would both agree keeps sure. us ultimately disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because then white folks are like, well, I don't have a culture. And it's like, that's not true. You just are going to have to go back a little bit further to like figure out what that lineage of culture is and then like reconnect with those traditions. Yeah. Much in the same way we have to, it's just a little closer to the surface, I think. Right, right. I know it's like, just even hearing you guys talk about it, it's like, I have the most like bizarre thoughts around like, we're talking about skin pigmentation. Like imagine right. we're talking about like, this is based on the color of our eyes or how, how oh, tall yeah. we are. It's like, oh, you made the height. You're in this class. You didn't right. make the height. Yeah. You're in this. It's like so fucking bizarre when we really think yeah. about it. And not to say that it's not real at the same time, that this is what's right. going on. But it's like. But it is crazy. It's when crazy. You think about it. You're like, this makes no fucking sense. Oh, yeah. None. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, you just have to go to places like Ethiopia and Eritrea and you see how the folk, the same people, basically the same folk tribes are. Or you go to Palestine and Israel. <laughs> and the same, yeah. And, and, you know, you, you sometimes you can't tell one from another, but they, if you, if you consider yourself Palestinian, I don't like you, or you're Jewish. I'm, mm-hmm. Like it's just crazy how we allow a, a few group of powerful people to draw up lines in the sand and say this is this and this is this and right. you were that and and allow it and then and then encourage us to fight each other, right? right. Um, so we're not focused on right the, the oppression. And I think this is where this conversation of internalized oppression comes into play, right? Because the systems replicate, we replicate the systems for the systems. Right. Like they don't really need to do it on their own anymore because we're replicating those systems within our own bodies mm-hmm. and then projecting that out to mm-hmm. others. Right. Um, yeah. Right. And what have you noticed with the work that you've done with plant medicines, with people in terms of their own transformational healing, their processes, moving through these these systems of oppression within themselves like are you noticing mm. the changes really taking root and happening with the with the work that you're doing yeah great question i appreciate you asking so it depends mm. so if a person comes to this work from the standpoint of a from an ancestral tradition right they come they come to this work with two two perspectives there's the work that i am doing to heal myself but the reason that I'm working to heal myself is not so that I could get myself off my off of my drug addiction or be more a more prodigious accumulator of wealth or work longer hours and become more efficient, right? Um, it's because I want to be a greater participant in my society, right? And that, that when I get to this place of transcendence and love, it's not love for people of my culture, but love for all humans, right? Mm-hmm. May all humans know loving kindness. However, in the West, we have a lot of people doing these medicines because of their ADHD or because of their, their drug addiction or their, their lack of love that they receive from a parent. And that's their focus. And so they address that issue and be damned the rest of us, right? Or they Which, just want to have an experience. Right. Or they want to just have an experience. And so you see that, you, you, you can see it clearly in Silicon Valley where microdosing is like a big thing, right? Uh, microdosing, but the reason why they're microdosing is so they can be more efficient at their jobs, right? To churn out, to churn out the hamster wheel even more efficiently, right? right. This is why we're, for us, we, we focus on ancestral traditions, the way hunter-gatherers approach their relationship with these sacred, uh, sacred medicines. Even if you're using a new medicine like LSD and MDMA, if you approach it from this place of consciousness, what happens is you heal yourself 
and then you're about the process of healing the world. You know, that first agreement to be impeccable with your word, right? That becomes a real practice for you, right? <laughs> to love deeply and thoughtfully every being on this planet and not participate in the abuse in any way, right? That means if you work for a company that supports the abuse of structure, you don't work there anymore or you change, mm -hmm. you change that environment, but you just don't just wring your hands and say, oh, I don't know if I could do anything. That, don't, that only typically happens when people are going to these medicines because they want, they're there. It's all about them. Let me go here to fix myself, right? And the other, the other part of that is, is because when they go to these medicines, you can, you can always hear, I can always tell the difference. When someone's talking about these medicines, they're talking about like it's a commodity, right? Oh yeah, I, I do a dose of this and this and it makes me feel this way. Versus the other folks who come from an ancestral practice, you're building a relationship with these medicines. You're asking for consent. You're asking these medicines, how can I support you in, in, my, in my walk? You've given me so much, thank you so much. With lots of great gratefulness and gratitude. And then what do you need me to do? What, what do I need to pay, pay forward to the greater community? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that's, that's so super important as psychedelics become more mainstream, right? Even like the words we use, like I hear people using words like tripping, mm -hmm. right? Versus a journey, mm -hmm. right? Or a ceremony, right? The words have power, right? I mean, you think about it like, like that, it diminishes the power that these ancient beings have in teaching you and guiding us mm -hmm. as, as, as humans. I think also, I mean, as you're saying this out loud, I'm like thinking about the word trip right does not have a positive connotation it's to stumble through right. something <laughs> right. right to like mistake through something yeah, yeah and so that's like even this western lens that gets put on things right. that like we we replicate this shit without even thinking about it yeah. because it's like that comes from the propaganda that convinced everyone that psychedelics led to psychosis right. and needed to be illegal right. and not you know studying all these things and then we like carry that that same uh language through the experience and then people are talking about having bad trips it's like you had a challenging journey right yeah. like we don't believe in bad trips um yeah. and then also just to circle back to your question i feel like what i hear a lot of folks um we do like a bi-monthly integration circle for bipoc folks and what we hear or what i hear a lot is people recognizing that they have the time and space for to pause which I think people across the psychedelic conversations will start to, they start to like notice this ability to pause, to be in the role of observer. But I think that's especially powerful when you don't typically have that time and that space and don't have the time and space to like pause and realize that as horrible as it is to live within these racial, these racist structures, like, we don't have to take all of it personally. And right. that's really freeing as well, right. um, is to just detach. I think the current climate and these wild ass people running around the Capitol made people really remember just how crazy some people are and that it's not personal. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, when you have that interaction, when you are repeatedly uh, sort of, abused in a work scenario or uh, in a relationship or whatever it is. And um, in a public interaction, 
you can step away from taking the interaction personally and being like, oh, this person is just so colonized and programmed that they feel the need to like project that hatred. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, So I think it it helps to diminish the ongoing effects of racial trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate what both of you shared. And I'm curious what you've learned about your own ancestry and the medicines that they used. And are you applying those teachings in the work that you do? And what medicines are you working with and holding space for? And yeah. Yeah. So uh, for me, a lot of my exploration has been through my connection to my ancestry, I think, has always been through music Mm -hmm. uh, as I think about it more. And Mm -hmm. uh, so mine has definitely been through like sound research. And then also beginning to learn more about African spiritual traditions. Uh, My father's side of the family is from Jamaica. So seeing how some of those traditions survived enslavement and replicated in the Caribbean. Um, And my mom's side is more Germanic. So that's been more of like a musical exploration, I would say. And the medicine, I mean, I have like herbs and things that I use that I know from my family because in Jamaica, they do a lot of like what they would call bush medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, when you like live in a place where there are not, you know, easily accessible medical uh, institutions, you use what comes from the land. So I know like a little bit about that stuff. And then through the Sabina project, we work with Combo mm-hmm. and Hape predominantly. Sananda. And Sananda. Mm. White sage, cedar, cedar, mine copal, copal, sweet grass. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Thank you for asking that question. So for me, I, I, I see myself first and foremost as a spiritual being having a human experience, and my fundamental nature is pure creative power and unconditional love. So Homo sapiens. Um, probably the first entheogens that we use were mushrooms. So all of us, every homo sapien probably owes credit to our first ancestors who were on the plains of Africa following the herbivores. And after the lions finished eating them, they would, you know, gather. We weren't hunter-gatherers. We were more like hunter uh, scavengers, <laughs> you know. And we would get a little bit of the bone marrow. And then anything that was on the ground that we put in our mouth and didn't kill us, we would consume it. And magic mushrooms probably mushrooms were probably the first medicine that explains why within two million years our, bron- our, our brains exploded in growth. Uh, and we went from, you know, very naked and afraid to, you know, the apex, unfortunately, well, fortunately for us, but unfortunately for the rest of the world, apex predator in the world. So I start from that perspective of where we're, we're going, right? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very interested in us at some point getting to the, like, I appreciate everyone's culture, everyone's race and belief system. Well, what I've consistently seen by, by observing our hunter gatherers all over the world is the inconsistency in their practice. And that was around rep, a deep reverence and respect for the land and the earth and all the beings around, around them, right? I think it, when we began to plow and farm is when we began to kill each other and we began to have property and these things of control and the patriarchy became, instead of man, men and women working together in community, somehow the men became 
in, in, in charge. And then that's kind of like when the wheel fell off the apple cart, right? Is that, <laughs> that point, right? So I am looking to get back to that place. Um, all of these medicines belong to all of us, mm-hmm. right? When you come to these traditions, however, there's lineages and you should be respectful of those lineages. And to my elders who are sharing their, these practices, I include myself in that framework as an elder, we should also understand that these relationships are constantly evolving, right? They weren't, they were never intended to be like, this is the way, and this is the only way. This is what works for me, right? And if you do it this way, you're more likely to have a better experience or the experience that you're looking for based on the context and the reason why we're, 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 we're taking these medicines. And I kind of just approach it from that. Um, I, my lineage that I initially was, I was so thankful to get connected with uh, Shipibo and Stephen's grandma Ayahuasca, but I also have a, a deep affinity and love for Wachuma, uh, for Bufo, for Iboga, um, and the Pygmies and, and the Dogon and their, and their deep knowledge of, of uh, you know, the, the, star, the star systems. And my goal is to experience or connect with all of these, these, these ascending masters and all of their, their, their medicines and focus on what is, the, what is similar in all these traditions, which is gentleness, respect, reverence, right? And, and responsibility. Like I, I have a responsibility, not just to myself, but to the greater collective. And when I make a decision, I make it not just for me, but the seven generations that precede me. I want us to get to a point where we see ourselves as one tribe called Homo sapiens, right? And we are all working for the embedment, not just of Homo sapiens, but every other of our brothers and sisters, the rock people, the plant people, the people, the air, the wingets, um, the mycelium people, the bacteria people, and everything in between four legates to two legates, they are all my relatives. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate that perspective because it's like when we start talking about ancestry, how far back do we want to go? And if we go all the way back, right. then we're really all the same people. We're all indigenous to Homo sapiens on this planet. You know, we're all humans yeah. indigenous to planet Earth. And so yeah. at what point do we start peeling back the layers and, you know, trying to dissect it? And this conversation around appropriation is also so nuanced. It's like, you know, I, I listened to another uh, interview that you guys did on another podcast and I heard you saying a ho a couple of times. And I was like, I know a lot of white people right now who are like dropping the a ho word because they're just <laughs> like, I don't want to touch that, you know. And so it's so right. it's so nuanced and it's so like, yeah. where do we go from here? And I, I really appreciate you bringing in the word responsibility because I, I yeah. think that that's really the best we can do is, you know, walk with integrity, try to show up with as much responsibility as possible and do the best that we can. And I'd love to ask you in moving past this this time that we're in that feels so divided, like what is the the vision you guys are holding for what the next chapter really looks like and the work that you're doing in, in an ideal scenario, you know, really influencing a larger mainstream population towards healing these systems of oppression that live within each of us and these, and, you know, dismantling, all, all of the constructs that are not serving us, you know, what's the vision you guys are really holding for the healing of humanity? Mm. No, no small question. No pressure. 
Well, I feel I feel like there's a couple of things. The first is the approach. Our vision is to first of all to be a our organization is to be a source of information for all peoples. Um, and what what you're gonna what we're gonna focus on is the the what you do before you sit in ceremony, like the preparing yourself, how we prepare, like how we how we develop our intentions. We're gonna spend time supporting people in ceremony, right? And the why you choose this particular ceremony versus another. And then the integration, like integrating what are the habits, beliefs, ideas, and people that no longer serve you that you're excited to let go of. And what are the people, habits, beliefs, and ideas that you're now excited to attract in your life, right? And so that's gonna be a primary focus. And we're gonna look at that from the ways, from paying attention to what our elders have already done. They've already laid a path for hundreds of thousands of years. Our ancestors have shown us how to do these things without causing harm and trauma to the rest of us, right? I do appreciate, but also we wanna bring in some of those technologies that the West has to offer, like psychotherapy. <laughs> I think it's fantastic, right? But also understand it's a very new technology. And some of us need to continue to develop that logical mind, need to know the exact why, why does combo treatment work or why does ayahuasca? So if you need to do that, great, right? But also when you're asking all those questions, consider that most of us, when we go get our prescriptions from our doctor, from a pharmaceutical drug, we don't even ask for to see our doctor's credentials. We just assume that this person has our best, uh, has our best, you know, is, is, is more concerned about our health, optimizing our health, right? But we know that's not true because now we have a new functional medicine. It's a relatively new, new type of medicine where, where they actually finally are looking at the entire organism versus just prescribing you a drug for this particular dis disease or discomfort that causes twelve other complications, right? So the pharmaceutical companies can win. So I think we're evolving as a species. And what I see, what I see a vision for our organization in the world is we're going to get to a place where we see ourselves as one breath and one beat. And that the reason why we do these medicines is from a construct that comes from some ancient wisdom, like paying attention to whatever all of our elders around the world, they're there from Tibet or from the Shipibo, they're so similar, or the Lakota or the Hopi, very similar. So say Aho, because actually the, the Blue Moon Prophecy says that Turtle Island, America is a place where all, all our relatives will come together to create a new vision. So please say Aho and Ashe, right? It's, or Amen, right? Uh, or Basi, right? <laughs> say these things with joy in your heart, and reverence and respect. It's really about how you approach these things. That that's that's when it becomes complicated. Like sometimes people come in because they want to appropriate versus to be part of something, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. Yeah, yeah. I think we're we're working to get our community and more of the world to be living life in. Ceremony. ceremony yes mm -hmm. yeah oh, just gosh, like yeah. living explain that i so dre started started to touch on it of like our focus is not just about what happens when you come to sit with the medicine because your journey in ceremony begins the minute the the medicine calls you yes and so it's and like you, and you and you choose call. to answer the call right and so it's um 
it's about how you are um, preparing your body, your mind, and your soul to uh, serve with these medicines, uh, and then how you're taking the lessons that the medicines bring to you and really turning that into daily action to contribute to our collective liberation. And it's like each breath is mindful, each like, you know, you'll say like a sip of water, like drinking water can be a ceremony, right? Giving oh, thanks for that, that resource that we so often just take for granted because we just open the tap and it's there for us. Right. Um, so I think it's it's all of that. And there was something else that just uh, popped out of my mind. Oh, you touched on this earlier around like having consensual relationships. And uh, I think that this is part of it, right? Um, we were in Circle recently and this person uh, yesterday was talking about what do you do if the medicine tells you to not come back? And like the medicine says, okay, I've given you your message. Mm -hmm. Now go and take that action. And it's like, you listen to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that much question. Like right. be respectful. The medicine is saying that it's time for you to integrate. It's time to you to put action to these visions that you're receiving these downloads and really turn that into the way that you live your life. And until you're ready to make that commitment, you don't need to keep running back to the medicine. Mm -hmm. um, so really just getting to a place where you're respecting um, and building relationships and being in good relation, in right relationship with all of our earthly beings. Can I say one more thing about this too? Because uh -huh. I don't want to give this impression because there's this term that I hate, recreational use, right? I don't, I don't really believe in that term because joy is healing, right? Joy is healing, right? If you're laughing, giggling, having a good time with friends, that's very, very healing. The dopamine serotonin levels that, that we need that. Right. Um, and so somehow then when people use recreate, they kind of try to diminish it. Like, Oh, well, that's not really as serious. And that's not what we're saying here at all. Mm -mm. Um, enjoy your connection with these medicines. Some of these medicines are, do have recreational, like, well, they, they do allow you to come to these medicine at very low doses and have a very joyous experience. And you can enjoy, enjoy that. Ayahuasca, probably not so much. Uh, or Iboga, right? <laughs> but there are some medicines, uh, or Acacia, right? You know, um, you know, like mushrooms is one of these medicines that it has, is very, it's a communication network. So it's very, it's very open to supporting whatever vibration and frequency, much like cannabis. It's a similar, similar, scenario. But let me also encourage you, right, it, when you're having that fun, just before you ingest those medicines, to do with a prayer, reverence, and respect, and ask for permission, and see how much more powerful that relationship becomes for you in that experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for all of that. You know, there's so many similar threads that run through other conversations that I have. I'm going to be releasing an, uh, an episode with Francois Bourzat, who's an elder in the space, and she's been working with leaders. I, I love her. Yes, yeah, she, she's amazing. That's why you're listening. I am. I am such. I have such a crush. Oh my gosh! Be my teacher, like, we have. So excited. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. 
totally fascinated by that human. Thank She's you. amazing. <laughs> and we had such a great conversation. And she said so much of the same thing, you know, when her teacher from Mexico showed up and she was like, where do you make your offerings? And Francois was like, oh, you know, that's from your tradition. And her teacher was like, we, you, you should be making offerings, <laughs> right. but, you know, and it's the same thing, what, similar what you just said about the words that we use of like really and, and showing up with respect and humility and that all cultures from all over the world have been building alder spaces. And, yes. you know, I, I interviewed uh, Sandra Ingerman who said, you know, if you go all the way back, you will hit someone in your ancestry who practiced shamanism. It's the most yes. ancient practice of our humanity, our human history. So yeah, there's so many similar threads here. And I just really just so appreciate the way you guys are holding this conversation. It's, oh, thank you. We appreciate you. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else that we want to cover that you want to share before, before we wrap up? Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, we have a mutual ceremony fund, mm -hmm. right? And we'd love for people to support and contribute to that fund. Let me tell you why we have it. So for people of color, there's a couple of barriers to entry. The first one is um, the consequences. You know, um, it's, they can be really severe, even for something like cannabis. In the state of Maryland, African-American male had a 900% more likely chance of being arrested for simple possession in a state where African-American used it at a lower rate than white men, mm. uh, but yet 900% more likely to be arrested. So. So because of that, those consequences, a lot of people of color and especially elders who like in my, in my age range, a little older, were very conservative around these relationships, right? Um, so we need to get the education out, but also like it costs a lot of money to go to ceremony. The ceremonies are expensive, right? Um, and then actually most people who offer a ceremony probably with the level of skill that they offer, probably should be charging a lot more, right? But to try to make it affordable, they only charge, you know, $350 here or whatever. But that's still inaccessible for me, most people that don't have the, the, the then there's to travel there. So this mutual ceremony fund allows for us, if a person is currently only legal ceremonies in, uh, that we can support, but if it's a legal ceremony, we uh, may be able to support them and help them you know, to, to get to that ceremony or to, to, to work with that, with the medicine to help heal themselves. Um, so that's the mutual ceremony fund. We'd love people to support that as well. And then we have integration circles every first and third Sunday of the month where people can come and connect and talk about now for BIPOC folks. Yeah. That, that one's for BIPOC, uh, only. And that's just because we, we need to offer a safe space where people of color mm -hmm. can talk about some of the traumas that they've experienced going to these circles that are almost predominantly uh, non-people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've been doing medicine work for 12 years now. Probably the first eight years, I was like one of many people mm -hmm. in my circle or of, co of color. Mm -hmm. I even black. Just of color. So, and there was many times where I felt like if it wasn't for the benefits I was receiving from these medicines, you wouldn't go back. I wouldn't go back to the circles yeah. because mm -hmm. people would unintentionally say things that were really extraordinarily harmful to me. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know. And for yeah. your anti-racism course, who, who do you notice shows up for those those courses? And and your next one, what's the date of the next one? We don't have the next, we don't have dates. I think it'll probably be like second quarter this year. Yeah. Um, that's predominantly white folks. Yeah, I'm pretty much exclusively. It's, yeah. Um, Which is nice. 
Nice yeah, I mean, that's the point. Yeah. Um, but there is a, um, we turned the class into a workbook that is downloadable oh. on our website. Great. So um, you can get that on our site and it has a lot of like the key definitions to provide framework for your learning and your understanding. And then it gets into ways to connect with ancestry and journal and meditation prompts to begin sort of discovering your role in our collective liberation movements. Wonderful. And is that a free download or that's a cost to download? It's a cost to download. Okay, great. And I'll include all of these links. And then I, I'm just curious because of, of what you said, Dre, um, do you have structures built into the Sabina Project organization that has like reciprocity built into it? You know, accessibility to medicine is a huge, huge issue and our awakening needs to be collective liberation for all people and it yeah. can't just be a white movement. Yeah. So this is such an important yeah. topic. I wanted to wrap up, but I just want to touch on this first. Yeah. So we have a merch store um, where you can get like, we have a black healers matter sweatshirt and tote bags and things like that and a portion of our proceeds from our store a portion of all of our profits as a company go back into our mutual ceremony fund and then the mutual ceremony fund which is essentially a scholarship fund functions both for folks who may want to do work with us like if they want to come to a um, combo ceremony or or hape ceremony but then folks who are doing work with other healers can also apply to cover their costs of working with other healers. So, um, you know, if somebody is listening to this and uh, they, you know, know someone in their community or a client or someone that is struggling to cover the cost of services, they could reach out to us and it's not a huge fund. We're not rolling in it. Um, (laughs) So we can't respond to every request, but we try to, Um, provide funding for folks when we can. Well, I think that's great. And just for anyone who's listening, you know, in the psychedelic space, whether you're holding space or not, or just participating, you know, especially people who are holding space for predominantly white folks, I think is also a great way to give back. Let's, you know, if we, if we stand for equality, let's act in alignment with what we stand for. So I encourage people to check out that fund and I'll include all of those links. Um, yeah, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Really, yeah, yeah we are too. We, we are really too. are. Thank we really you. appreciate it. You know, we all can do uh, to support all humanity in our practices. Is that you know, when you come to these medicines, if you if you come to these medicines without approaching these with a, a degree of seriousness, when you're doing a, di- a diet or you know you're you're, you're actually working to, to eliminate the problem. Because what I've heard from, sometimes I hear people say, I'm going to these ceremonies to get a cleanup, right? And I'm like, ah, well, yeah, maybe that's not what you should come here to do. Maybe you should get the cleanup the first time and support, change those new habits. Now, some of us like, you know, I'm, I have an addiction or had an addiction to sugar. So maybe I go back and I, I, I struggle with that, right? But sometimes people come to these medicines in such a disrespectful way like the medicine is there as their um, crutch mm-hmm. right and then there's an infinite supply of and it. there's an infinite supply but mm-hmm. if every human being who started using these medicines pretty quickly there'd be no bufo right, uh, right. available there'd be no ayahuasca available mm-hmm. there'd be no iboga or or well, i mean we, we're even struggling with white sage now uh to, because everybody's using it so we really have to just 
everybody understand that if you're enjoying a relationship with these medicines, it is of tremendous privilege that you have. So take that privilege seriously and be responsible. Mm-hmm. Do your work. Mm-hmm. That's so well said. I, I really feel that, especially I just had my first Iboga experience and I was really processing that. I was like, wow, this is an endangered plant. And yeah. I, I took that 30 days after my experience of like, I am so dedicating to my integration because it's like, yeah. we can't just keep going back. And and that this is the work. I, I yeah. had a friend say, integration is the new ceremony, similar to what you're saying, like the ceremony of life. <laughs> yes. So many nuggets of wisdom. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, guys. It's been such a pleasure. Really. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yay. <laughs> That was awesome. Thank you so much for your questions and your energy. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, Appreciate you. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. And I just wanted to put it out there that if you hear either me or one of my guests saying something that is triggering for you or that's bringing up some concern, my door is always open to welcome and engage in conversations. Even if they feel challenging or triggering, I'm open to leaning in, especially engaging with people who hold different perspectives than I do. If you want to get in touch with me, please reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, or send me a message on Instagram at livefreelauraD. And my only request is that if you'd like to engage in any kind of conversation with me, please show up with kindness and compassion and a willingness to engage in a two-way conversation. I'm going to be leaving you off with this beautiful version of this song called Agua de Estrellas from Giselle. And once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time.